0: If you know me at all, you know that I love the holiday seasons. Growing up, our family had a lot of different traditions that we were involved in. Uh, every year, well not every year, but most years growing up, we would have what the Germans call a putz. Uh, a putz is a platform with a train and houses. Uh, we'd do a Christmas tree. Now, this year as we've gotten a little older, we don't always do the putz in our Christmas tree. This year's about that tall. Uh, We just decided we were going to take it easy. But I love those things. I love Christmas morning. I love getting up. I love the joy of it. I love watching my children and now my grandchildren, and particularly the night before Christmas. Not just the poem, you know, as the night before Christmas and all through the house, Um, but because of their sense of excitement, their sense of joy. And I know some children, that's not true. For, for some children, the next day is dreaded and there's a concern, there's an emptiness. But for many, uh, many children and, and our children, the, the, the night before Christmas, they don't know exactly what's coming. They don't know exactly what's going to happen the next day. But they just have that sense of anticipation, that sense of, of joy, that sense of something's coming and I just can't wait kind of idea. I love Christmas morning when you wake up. You all come together and you sit in the, in the living room. And yes, we torture our children each Christmas. We, Require them to listen to the entire Christmas story as we read it before we open the gifts. And depending on how cruel I feel, I may shorten it or I may throw in the magi and the, you know, the temple dedication. And, but we read through it and then comes that time when you begin with the youngest and you end with the oldest. And each one gets to open their presents. It's joyous. I love it. But you know, I began to realize something, even as a child, in the midst of all that joy and legitimate joy, there was always an element of sadness, something that wasn't quite all I wanted it to be. Often when I was a child, it had to do with I didn't quite get the toy or the gift that I wanted, and you know, there's a sense of sadness or disappointment, and you have to be careful. Often that is um, selfishness, it is, you know, a, a sense of self centeredness. And when you're dealing with your children, you have to teach them to, to enjoy and accept the things that they've received. But in that sense of emptiness, you need to be careful that you don't fully crush that in a child. Because in that sense of emptiness is a phenomenal theological truth. In fact, knowing that I was going to preach this message this morning, and, and as I was driving in and listened to the radio, and, and uh, I, I really get irritated at the Christian stations that are you know all now Christmas music, and that's fine, but on Sunday mornings, I don't want to hear, Here Comes Santa Claus. And so I'll kind of flip between them and, you know, I enjoy listening particularly to the hymns and the carols of Christmas. And as I was driving in this morning and listening to them, I was just aware that the the thought, the, the theological underpinning of this message just brought me an incredible sense of joy. Now, here's the theological underpinning that is so paradoxical theological underpinning is this on this side of the veil in this world even the greatest of events never fully satisfies it's never all I want now for children you have to be careful we want to say you know you got to learn to appreciate what you get and that's right you know You get what you get without regret. That's a good thing. But also to acknowledge that within all of this wonderful excitement and joy, there may be elements in which it's not all I want. Maybe this year somebody isn't there that I long to have there. Every Christmas we gather for Cindy and I, unless our children are around us, there's a sense of I wish there was something more. My daughter and son-in-law and, yes, three grandchildren in England. If you were here last week, I missed one. Um, They won't be there this Christmas. And there's a little bit of me that says, I long for more. There's the knowledge that no matter how exciting the the day is, no matter how wonderful the day is, no matter how great the meal is and the the time afterwards and sitting around and telling stories and all the things that are a part of our our Christmas celebration, you know what I realize? It's going to end. I have to go to work the next day. I really don't have off that week, but most of you, have to go to work the next day. And as a child and now as an adult, I realize there's a part of me that always wants more. And that's not bad. Because that's how I was created. With a hunger and thirst for more In this world, can ever provide. And as a result, I can know joy. Isn't that profound? Isn't that upside down? But yet, as we come to Psalm 126, there is in Psalm 126 very much that idea. That in the midst of the joy and the celebration, in the midst of the hallelujahs and the glories, in the midst of an incredibly exciting event, there was a reality that it's not all that my my heart longs for. And in that we can find joy. If you have your Bibles, turn to the passage that we read not too long ago in Psalm 126. And you'll find there that what we understand from the Psalm is this. That God's certain faithfulness allows us to wait in joyous anticipation that yes, even though there's that sense it's not all I long for, we can still rejoice and celebrate. We can still enjoy our families and the gifts. We can still enjoy the feast and the the family time. We can still enjoy all that, even though we understand that inside there will always be that sense of I long for more. I long for more. Now Psalm 126, as I mentioned several weeks ago, is part of the the liturgy, the, the reading that is a part of many churches across the world, and this is the third Psalm to be read in this particular week of Advent. And though we have all white candles up here, and that's one of the traditions. Sometimes they do four red candles and a white one in the middle. But in a lot of churches, another way that you'll see the candles, and that is you'll see three purple candles and one rose-colored candle. If we had done that in our, our lighting our, our candles this morning, that would have been that pink candle, that rose-colored candle would have been the one that we liked. And the idea is that in the midst of this Advent season in which we prepare, in which, yes, there is repentance, in which there is an acknowledgement that we and our world is not all that it's meant to be, there is also the reality that there is joy coming. And so in the midst of Advent, those that developed the sort of the Advent calendar on that third week, in the midst of that time of preparation, wanted to remind us that there's joy. And they chose this psalm because of that phrase that we read. And and thanks, Jess, for doing that and having us read it several different times about the joy that is ours in the Lord. But as you come to Psalm 126, there's that now and later. There's that, yeah, we have joy, but there's something more. As you come to this particular Psalm and you begin reading it, the first thing you come to understand is this, that joyous anticipation is rekindled by remembering God's previous acts of faithfulness. The things that God has done in our lives in the past, and we take some time to remember those. To remember the ways that God has worked in our lives, and in our hearts, and in circumstances, and relationships. And to be able to say, God, thank you for that. And the same God that did that is the same God that is with me now. And we remember Now, in order to do that in Psalm 126, we need to understand a few things about this psalm. First of all, this psalm is part of the the fifth book, the last book that makes up the book of Psalms. We've we've mentioned that there are five different books in the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 through 41 is the first book, then Psalm 42 through 72 is the next, then 73 through 8, 89, 90 through 106, and now 107 to 150 is the last book that is put together in the book of Psalms, and it is the one that talks most about joy and celebration, and you read the word in Hebrew over and over again, hallel or hallelujah, as over and over again there's this sense of joy in this last book the book can also be subdivided into some other collections there are several the book is comprised of what's called the egyptian halal and it was the psalms 113 through 115 i'm sorry 113 and 118 that were read during the passover And so when you read in the Gospels that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn before they made their way out to the garden, it was probably one of these five Psalms that were included in that. One of the Egyptian Halleals, that were part of the Passover. You have Psalm 119, the longest Psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible. And actually, it's a collection of psalms unto itself. Each stanza of that poem begins with a Hebrew letter in alphabetical order, and they proclaim the greatness of the Word of God. Psalm 119. Psalms 120 to Psalm 134 are called the songs of ascent. And then there are the hallelujah psalms. Psalms 146 to 150, that over and over and over and over again proclaim the glory and the wonder of the Lord with that word, hallelujah, come praise God. Now, Psalm 126 is part of these songs of ascent and The idea of ascent, some think that these 15 psalms are ascent because there were 15 steps that led up into the temple. And so they were part of sort of that ceremony. More likely, they have to do with the psalms that the people sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem during the annual festivals. You always went up to Jerusalem, and the reason why is Jerusalem was on top of a mountain. And so these are the songs of going up. These are the songs that the people sang as they were making pilgrimages to Jerusalem and they were getting ready for the festivals and they were celebrating what God had done and getting ready for their great feast days. But you also have to understand the historical setting of Psalm 126. Remember back 500 years before the birth of Christ. The nation of Israel, the southern kingdom, was taken into captivity. And they lived in Babylon for 70 years. But at the end of those 70 years... God worked it out through the leaders of, of the, the, the Persians at that time. And he worked it out. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And now the Jewish people were underneath the Persians. And the king of the Persians, Cyrus, all of a sudden realized that here was a people that had a land that they were to be a part of. That had a temple to their God. And so he made a decree. And he proclaimed that the Jews could return to the land and they could establish their temple again and they could establish their city again. And there was a time of just celebration and joy as the people made their way back. And and so what happens is, in the midst of this is that the people are proclaiming the, the greatness of this event. The psalmist proclaims the the wonder of a God who restores his people. And those first three verses, as it's talking about what is taking place, there's just a celebration, a joy. Look at what God has done. All of a sudden, we were in captivity. And now we're in the land. Now we're in the promised land again. We're building our temple. We've made the foundation. The the priests are again involved in sacrifice. We can be involved in all that is an expression of our relationship with God. And they were celebrating. And that's where their psalm is written. It's in response to what Ezra talks about when he says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Yes, there was a political things that were going on. Yes, there were governmental things that were going on. But guess whose hand was involved? The Lord moved the heart of of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what he wrote. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem and Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And they rejoiced. And Ezra talks about those that returned and how they began to develop and how they built the the foundation of the temple and how they began to rejoice. And as you read in the Psalms there, their reaction as they stood before this temple foundation and the beginning of rebuilding, it says, when the Lord brought us back, the captives of Zion, we were like men who had dreamed. We had dreamed of this and now it was happening. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Even the nations were declaring, God must be among his people. And so in response, the experience is described as living out of a dream. I have two kinds of dreams. Some are joyous and others aren't. I was telling Cindy I had a dream this week where I was still in my doctoral program, and I couldn't figure out a title for my dissertation, and if I didn't figure it out, I was not going to pass my, 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 my classes. And then finally I woke up and I went, oh, wait a minute, I'm done. This wasn't that kind of dream, it was the opposite. We thought we were dreaming, it was so amazing. And we woke up, and it was real. Astounding. Joyous. The report of God's faithfulness leads to to wonder and and praise and, and celebration. Then it was said, even among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And then the people declared, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. But the thing you have to remember, what's different between Psalm 85, because there was a similar theme there and in the midst of all that was taking place, and, and then they, they talk about the struggles and what seemed to be a famine, and then they remembered all the way back to the Passover. Not this time. These are personally experienced events to be remembered. Remembered. Those that wrote this psalm, the person who wrote this psalm was writing a psalm of things that they remembered in their own life. Not the things that happened millennia ago, but the things that happened a few years ago, a few decades ago. Things that they had experienced where God's faithfulness was there. So in the midst of the celebration, there's a remembering, remembering what God had done. Do you have those memories? The the time when you came to salvation for the first time, particularly those who might have been a little older, and suddenly the message of the gospel became real. And you realize that I can stand before God and and I'm forgiven and I'm accepted and I'm his. And he can pour out his love upon me and all that I've ever done, all that I ever will do has been forgiven in Christ. Remember the joy? Celebration? Maybe it's a time when, when God brought a, a deliverance or a sense of healing in your life. A relationship that was strained and suddenly it comes together after you've been praying for so long. I, I remember a dear woman back in, in, in Louisiana who prayed for her children to come to know the Lord for decades. And because of the events of Hurricane Katrina, One of her children responded to that message. And the joy. Celebration. Maybe it was a providential event. Where God worked the circumstances in a way that that brought about an event that you couldn't have otherwise foreseen. I, I was talking to somebody not too long ago about a couple who had decided, or a man who had decided that he was going to take his life unless God left him know that God was real. Suddenly, there was a message on a pastor's email that said, thank you for your call. God used it to save my life. Pastor didn't know who it was from. And so he called back and he said, who are you and what's this about? The story went on that the day before, the pastor had been trying to call home. And he kept pushing the wrong number, not realizing it. But to the man who was in the midst of the despair, the name of the church kept coming up. God's presence, church. That's God's providence. Now, there may not be that kind of huge event. It may be the small events. But to remember. Every seminarian I know has the the story of being at the very end of your financial ropes and you go to your mailbox and you open up the mailbox and there would be a check that God provided. I I don't know what God has done in your life. And and maybe you're sitting here thinking, boy, I I just can't think of anything like that. And the fact is, sometimes we can be so deep in the midst of the struggle that we can't remember. I have a a friend, a dear friend, who who struggles with depression so much. And so oftentimes we would interact and we would talk and my friend would be saying, I I just, I, I don't think God has ever been with me. But I'd known my friend for many, many years. And I was able to say, Do you remember when the Lord did this? Remember when the Lord did that? Remember how you prayed for this? Sometimes the darkness can be so deep, like, like Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and 19, where Elijah says, I'm just alone. I've had it. And God says, Let me show you remember now maybe I've never had those experiences I I may need to see have I ever had a relationship with the Lord but to remember those events to hold on to them to know that the same God that was faithful then is the same God that's faithful now but in the middle of that celebration of rejoicing over the temple, something very unique happened. Something took place that demonstrates the reality of living this side of the veil, this side of eternity. The result of living east of Eden. You see, the celebration was taking place, Ezra chapter 3. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, and he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The temple's being rebuilt. We're doing it again. But... There were some in the midst that said, even in the midst of this joy, I long for more. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, the temple of Solomon, the, 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 one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the gold and the, the stone and, the, and just the amazing splendor looked at the foundation and said, is this all there is? They saw the foundation of this temple being laid. And while many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping. What an incredible portrayal of the reality that in this world even in the midst of the greatest joy there's always a longing for more now we can enjoy the now but there's always a longing for the later we can enjoy what is ours There's always a longing for more. And that's okay. God wants us to long for the more. In the midst of that, the writer reminds us, you know, there's a number of different ways that God may come into the midst. And joyous anticipation is rekindled by remembering God's promised response to our faithfulness. That in the midst of of the struggle, in the midst of it's not all I long for, in the midst of of the times of emptiness, God says, just remember, I will respond to that faithfulness in the midst of that struggle. And so the psalmist uses two illustrations in living in our culture. We totally miss them sometimes. Verse 4 begins this way. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, none of you want, oh. Why? Because we don't know what the heck a Negev is. And then there's a second illustration. And those who sow in tears will reap songs of joy. They go out with little seeds. And they come back with sheaves. Two different ways that God works. Sometimes he works like streams in the Negev. And what you see is that God responds immediately. And the idea is walking in the desert. And they had these things called wadis. They were deep cut channels out in the desert that they were dry most of the year. But as soon as it started raining, the smoke amount of rain that would hit that wilderness area all that water would run into these gullies and all of a sudden these gullies would be filled with just this rushing stream and if you could stand there and watch it you would see this water come pouring through all of a sudden and the whole land around the wadi wadi just green up immediately within hours And some who stood there in the midst of celebrating the temple, they saw it as a wadi event, a negev event. As God suddenly just poured out his blessing, all of a sudden, it was just overwhelming. Sometimes God works that way. I have another friend in Louisiana who had a drug addiction. Came to know the Lord. The next day, he threw all of his drugs away. And never had a craving for drugs again. Do you know how rare that is? That is astoundingly rare. He had the experience of a Negev. When suddenly God comes through in an overwhelming way. And just washes you away. But I don't know about you. That's a rarity in my life too. Usually, God responds the other way through the long awaited harvest. Where in faith, I have to go out and, and plant the seed. In faith, I have to attend it. In faith, I have to wait. In faith, I have to believe that God will bring the, the, the rain and the sunshine and the, that which is needed. And I have to believe and I have to wait for that day when God says, yes, the harvest will come. So God says sometimes we wait. Like those older Old Testament saints who stood there and said, is this all there is? And had to be reminded by the the prophets no, there is a temple coming that is greater than this. There is a Jerusalem coming that is greater than this. There is a relationship with God and one another that is coming that is greater than this. There is a coming that will never disappoint. But in the midst of it, be faithful. And when you think about sowing seeds, sowing is usually performed in a time of struggle. Now, we don't know this because we're not farmers. And even if we were farmers today, we have refrigeration and freeze drying and all the rest. They didn't back there. And so the harvest took place and you put the food aside for the rest of the year until the next harvest. And as you began to eat, the amount of food and supplies went down and down and down and down and down. Until eventually, sometimes there was very little left except for that big pot of seeds. But you knew, out of faith, I don't eat that pot of seeds. And even though I'm hungry, and even though I'm struggling, I will still trust. That's sowing in tears. Sowing involves faith. I will take those seeds. I will go out to the land. I will put them in the ground where they will rot. And I can't eat them anymore. Believing that God will be there. Sowing involves persistence. Tending the soil as I, as I prepare it. Tending the soil after I've planted. Holding on. And knowing that sowing's results come gradually. Little sprout, little plant, as it grows and grows. But here's what I know I know that reaping is promised to those who faithfully sow. I'm still hungry in the time of sowing, I'm still hungry. In the time of waiting. I'm still hungry. In the time of cultivating. But in the midst of the hunger. I hold on. To the fact that God. Will come through. Maybe. It'll be a temporal fulfillment. That taste of joy. Or maybe. It'll be that full fulfillment when all is made right. You see, that's what the psalmist is telling us about He's saying, yes, in the midst of the Advent, there will be times of joy and happiness. And you may get the present you like. You may, you may have that great time with your family. But maybe there's someone missing. Or, or maybe there's, there's a time when, when it has to come to an end. Or maybe the kids aren't as well behaved as you wish they were. Like, you know, whatever it may be. But I can still rejoice. Do you know why? Because when my heart begins to say. I long for more. God's word says. It's coming. So enjoy. What you have now. Knowing that the Lord will bring it all. Back to what it says. Back to verse 4, knowing that the Lord in every life, every life of those who are a believer will have that time when the Negev will fill and God will be there. Maybe it's that moment when I close my eyes and on this life and God says, I am now here. Maybe it's when the Lord comes and there's a shout and there's the trumpet of the Lord and we all go up to meet him in the sky. You know why we can be joyous now? Because we know this isn't all there is. There's more coming. God's word declares that for us as believers, what Advent is all about is the joyous anticipation that is rekindling and remembering that at any moment, the Negev may flood and all will be right. I know I've told this story, I think, here before, but when I was a kid, Christmases were a unique experience. And I think it's why I love this theological theme so much. Most of you know that my brothers and sisters are much older than I am. The next one to me, my youngest sister, is 16 years older than I am. My oldest sister, I won't tell you because some of you know my age and I'd be revealing other things, but let's say she's significantly older than 16 years between me and her. And so when I was a kid, what we would do on Christmas is usually my parents and I would jump in our VW Beetles. We had like three of them. And we would make our way to one of my sister's or brother's houses and they would have their children with their gifts and we would open up the gifts and we would all be excited about Christmas and all the rest. But my parents had done something. Because always the best gift they would keep at home. They didn't want it to get broken in the midst of the craziness. They didn't want me to have to share it with everybody, you know, for whatever reason. And so I can remember as a kid watching my nephews and nieces open up these great gifts and thinking to myself, yeah, I can really enjoy that because there's more coming. Not getting all the gifts that I wanted on Christmas morning, thinking, yeah, but there's more coming. And so I've got to joy what's there. I can remember all day long thinking, there's more coming. (laughs) And so the joy could be there in a unique way. And then we'd go home. And I'd open the door in the front, and it went right into the living room. And there it was. The more that was coming. One year, it was a G.I. Joe space capsule. It was the most thrilling thing I think ever got. You know, that, that one gift. Beloved, we can be joyous now. This much. We can enjoy the holidays. We can enjoy Christmas morning. We can enjoy all of it. And yes, inside, there's a part of us that says... Yeah, but it's not all I want. I long for more. And the father says, Good child. Your heart wants more. Do you know why? Because there's more coming. So enjoy what is here. Knowing it won't be all you want. Because more is coming. And for Advent. That more is simply this. According to the Lord's own words. They heard this directly from him. We tell you. That we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Do you know, even those that are in heaven right now, in the presence of the Lord, the Lord keeps saying, and they can enjoy heaven, but he keeps saying, yeah, but there's more coming. There's more coming. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ, their bodies are going to come up first. And after that, by the way, I want to see that. There's an old cartoon where, the, where all of that is taking place. And one guy's with his unbeliever, so he grabs the unbeliever, and they're going up in heaven. And he looks at him and says, repent now or die. You know, I don't know that that's a good evangelistic technique. But there's that idea of, you know, it's going to happen. The Negev is going to flood. The streams are going to fill. And all of the greenness we long for will take place. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be changed. I mean, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Folks, there's more coming. And let's encourage one another with those words. Do we enjoy Christmas? Oh yes. I can't wait to sit there with my grandkids and you know, Audrey's too young, she don't quite get it. By next year, I think. But to watch Austin's excitement as it grows over the days, the, to watch my own excitement, to, to be involved in that, uh, the Sunday, the, the Christmas morning when, we, when I make the waffles and we eat them together and, and all of that to enjoy it. It's okay. And by the way, the difference between that soul reality and depression. Soul reality says, I can enjoy what's here even though I long for more. Depression says, I can't even enjoy it anymore. And when we struggle with that, God works in our lives. But we can say, I can enjoy what I have because there's more coming. So we rejoice and we say, the Lord has done great things and will do even greater things so our hearts can be filled with joy. Father, thank you for the psalmist and his experience. Father, for this historical representation of the struggle of living in a fallen world, Lord, we do celebrate. We do have joy at times and we are able to remember your goodness, but we also are reminded that that Lord, there's always that sense of longing for more. Thank you that that more is ours in Christ. And if there's anyone that's not certain of that in their lives this morning, that they would come and speak to somebody here to, to know how that can begin through faith and trust in your son and, how we can continue to maintain that in our lives. Father, we pray that our time this season would be one that is joyous because we rest in the knowledge that you are always faithful. Father, in our joy, we bring you the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen.